How would you describe grief? I think grief is the pain of knowing that we will never have this again. This relationship, this moment, this opportunity, whatever this is, the chance for that has been taken away from us. That's the difference between grief and loss and sadness and all of the other emotions we might confuse it with. I will never have that again with you. Grief is realizing that there is an ending and we'll never, ever have that chance with them again. Yeah. In a way, that's why I feel ridiculously lucky because I've had that chance with my dad. Even if now he's kind of gone on further, had my perfect goodbye, I've said all the things I wanted to say to him and literally have recordings of those moments to play back, which is very, very lucky. It kind of doesn't feel so lucky now. Uh, A little bit like, you know, my dad's had a very lucky life, but I don't think he thinks of his life at this moment as lucky. And I think that's what's really important, that people should never dismiss their own grief because yes you you had those moments but you can't tell them about this podcast there is always a new this and that's why grief doesn't end there will be a moment when someone's first child is born or the moment when their first child graduates from university and the grief is there because this this moment the person who's gone isn't part of and I think that's why grief doesn't end it just the box that surrounds it gets bigger My Dad. Episode 17 The Box and the Jar. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. Talks about death and grief and touches on suicide, terminal illness, and abuse. But it touches on them lightly and doesn't contain any descriptions. I'm here with Karen Pollock in one of the offices in a Quaker meeting house in Northumberland to talk about death and grief. Hello, Dave. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you, too. This has been one of the nicest of these conversations to arrange because we know each other through social media for quite a few years. But this is the first time we've met face to face. And it's quite strange putting your face and your voice together because I've seen both but never at the same time. I'm finally hearing the voice to put to your face because I've seen your face. There is I think always that risk you take when you move from never having met to meeting of what if the created person I've got in my head doesn't match the person in front of me. I really like it when it happens though because I think it's always worth taking that risk. I guess first of all let's get an idea of who you are and what you do. I'm a counsellor and psychotherapist. I work online, face-to-face, and I do walking therapy. The way I work is person-centred, so it's very traditional. I don't quite have a couch, as you can see from looking around this room, but it's that sort of creating the space where someone can heal and grow. What's untraditional is the walking therapy, which is really good for people who've had previous negative experiences of 
counselling. Just the very idea of sitting in a chair of someone sort of looking at them with the head tilt going, tell me how you feel. It's horrific for them. So we walk through the Northumberland countryside instead. How did I get into it? A long convoluted story, but largely everyone I knew was telling me not to go back into teaching, which is my previous career before being a stay-at-home parent. Took some listening skills courses, originally thinking it would be useful for being a teacher and fell in love with it. And now I'm a specialist, gender, sexuality and relationship diversity therapist. And I did a second postgraduate diploma in just working in that field. For this episode about death and grief, it's actually a topic whereby science is kind of not quite enough. Looking at what you do online, you know, you kind of talk about being trained in scientific method and psychotherapy, but also you've got a background in philosophy in terms of what you've studied. On your blogs, you mentioned Buddhist stories and parables a few times. And I think you would be the kind of person to speak to about death and grief because they don't fit comfortably into just the science. I think think that's very true. There's an art and a science, I think, to working with grief that some people struggle with. Historically, we've moved from it almost all being the art, and then we moved into, oh no, there is a science, and this is how it will go. And that wasn't always the most helpful for people, especially, I think, because science wants to put things in neat boxes. And when it comes to dying, death, and grief, there aren't many neat boxes before we kind of get into some of the the sorts of things that you do and think around these things, I guess the first thing that comes up when one starts looking at grief and therapy and science and the study of grief is Kubler-Ross. In one of your blogs that I was reading, you've talked about the Kubler-Ross industry. The original work was groundbreaking because she said, let's look at how people approach death from a scientific perspective. We had this model of death, I think, that was very much Christianized. You'd lie there very very piously with your family and friends around you going, I'm going to a better place, I'm fine. She knew that wasn't the case because she worked with people with terminal cancer. So some people were angry. Some people were downright furious. Some were resigned. Other people went through lots of different emotions and she drew the change curve out of proper scientific data. There were a couple of problems though. One was she was talking to people who were facing death. There was an end point. So the model that she was designing was people might experience these things and we kind of have to get them to the end point, which is their own death. And acceptance will be better for them because obviously if you're still fighting against what's going to happen, you can't do the things you might want to do before you die. If you're in denial you can't say goodbye to your family. So she was looking for a model that was useful for people working with the dying. Lots of my problems with the industry is it's been seen as a series of steps everybody must take, which was never her intention, I don't think. But also you'll see it now, people who've been made redundant. And I I literally heard of this happening. You all be made redundant. Here's the Kubler-Ross change cycle. This is what you're going to feel. Bye-bye. Well, No, it was never meant to be prescriptive. I really worry now that when someone loses a loved one or is going to experience grief and they're looking for help, they see this and they think, ah, this is how you do grief. And if I don't do it in this way, I'm failing at grief. And I think that's a terrible thing to say to someone who's going through one of the worst experiences of their life. It's a good framework for people who it works for, I think. It's like any of those things. If somebody needs to be given permission to feel angry or needs to be given permission to feel comfortable with the fact that they're bargaining with their circumstances, if looking at that model is useful to them, then great. 
But when I look at it, I'm like, well, first of all, it requires an understanding of how you're feeling. And we always talk about like, feel your feelings. And I've been through therapy and I try to feel my feelings, but I can't always feel my feelings. And so first of all, you need to know, like be able to name what you're feeling to say, does it match up? But then I think, again, like when you've got a framework, people are like, oh, I'm not doing it quick enough in the right order. I'm not, oh, I'm feeling a different emotion that's not in the, is it five, I think, or five different ones, or there might be a bit more actually. The original model had five, yeah, the, it, and it's been added to and the Kubler-Ross Foundation have said, oh, well, you know, this this isn't prescriptive and this isn't do A, B, C, D, E. But in a sense, it doesn't matter that they say now it's more complicated because the simpler model has been let loose on the world. To go back to what you say about feel the feelings, and I think this is so important, human beings feel more than one thing at once. And around grief, so many people can look at a progressive model and think, oh God, I'm awful. You you can love the person who died and hate them. You can be incredibly angry and want to forgive at the same time. So even that simple denial, bargaining, acceptance, anger, you could feel all of those in the same millisecond by drawing it as a curve, by saying you will move smoothly from this to this in a process of transition it denies what people are experiencing yeah and i guess it also it says that there's an end point like that the, the, there needs to be an end point there's also a beginning point that is fixed within this idea like my dad is still alive he's 95 but i've very much feel I'm already grieving him, you know, have been for quite a, a while as he's progressively developed more and more advanced stages of dementia. He's less himself. And so I'm grieving the person he was and having to sort of get to know the new person that he is. And there's all sorts of different things. And I don't live near him now. I don't see him now. But I often hear his voice talking to me exactly the way that people who have lost their, their parent often say to me, oh, yeah, I hear my father or mother's voice talking to me when I'm walking around the house. And Initially, I was like, how can I be having this experience? Is that the same? Because he's not dead yet. So is it the same? And I think, yeah, it is probably the same. Because we're both remembering and imagining our loved ones talking to us after we feel they've gone, even if literally my dad is still alive. There's a flaw in all this living. There's dust behind our eyes. I am bored of breathing. I'm a handsome guy I never saw you grieving All those tears we cried It was just deception A beautiful disguise And every time Every time you have lost him because that's one of the pains of dementia is it takes away the person that you got to know throughout your life. That's one of the things about working with grief that sometimes is really hard for people to accept. So they like the Kubler-Ross model because it says there is an end to this. The pain of grief doesn't end. And that can be almost as devastating as the grief for some people because they want the pain to end. What happens is you learn to live in a world where you have grief. I saw a wonderful visual. I was at Academic Arches at the weekend and this woman spoke incredibly movingly about her husband's suicide and how listening to the Archers had helped her and her sons deal with the loss. Everyone in the room is in tears. She had this visual image of three pictures and the first picture was a box and the jar 
filled the box. The next picture, the jar kind of half filled the box. And in the last picture, the jar was still there, but it was just in one corner of the box. And in each, the jar was grief. The grief wasn't going, but the box that contained it was growing. Oh, and I beautiful. loved that. Yeah, that works very well. And it's interesting. I read a few, quite a few of your blogs, but specifically the most relevant ones were one called Opening the Door to Difficult Conversations, mm-hmm. one called Deaf and Second Chances, and one called The Messiness of Grief. Reading that actually was one of the big reasons why I kind of reached out to you and asked you to be a guest. And all of those blog posts in, in different ways are kind of speaking to what you're talking about, about how grief remains. It's not necessarily about getting rid of it, but just le- learning to live with it. There's a, a really good quote, which was, how do we reconcile a moment where we cease to be with our current existence. And ceasing to be is actually very pertinent phrasing to me, to my life, for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, I I sometimes want to cease to be, otherwise known as having suicidal thoughts. But also that was the first way I conceptualised death at all. Like I, I have a very clear memory of lying in bed, probably about nine or 10 years old and realizing that death, if there's no heaven, which I was starting to think there might not be any kind of heaven, that I would be ceasing to be. And that was terrifying. And so terrifying that I kind of got up and went into my dad's room and he kind of said, well, you know, we're here now and we can't do anything about this future idea. And that was kind of the first time I thought about death, but also kind of started to come to terms with the idea of it approaching. But also it's the first time I can remember thinking, oh yeah, my dad's going to die he's going to cease to be. The person who's giving me the strength in this moment is actually part of the problem in a way, part of the thing I'm I'm trying to deal with. In later life, when I've told my dad about that moment, because he's moved on and he's actually in a slightly different place spiritually now, not that he's necessarily a believer, but he is not a not believer. He uh, has created his own kind of spiritual awareness. He talks about the great unknown other rather than God. And he sort of comes to the conclusion or he came to the conclusion because he's no longer in a space where he could articulate any of this. But he came to the conclusion that, you know, the universe must have had something that started it, which I think is a bit of an assertion to be honest but that's his belief i'm still quite agnostic unlike him who kind of stepped over into some kind of belief when i told him what he'd said to me he was like well yes that's that's the that's the scientific answer yes that's what the science science people would say but i'm quite glad that he did say that the scientific answer was useful to my 10 year old self but i can understand how it's not so useful for 95 year olds the frightening thing there i think for all of us is that we can't know i'm just thinking about your dad in a way i suppose he he has ceased to be because you asked earlier was this grief like yes it's grief because who he is is no longer who he was but it's, if we can't know, we can either kind of run from that in fear or, or rather, as he wisely said, to say, well, there might be something, there might not be something. It's interesting because in my work, I work with people of like all faiths and none because I don't need to agree with what they believe to be able to work with the fact that the belief matters to them. But I think it's really useful that I was a Buddhist for 20 years. I now attend the Quaker Meeting House, but I think there's virtually no difference there in my head. But sometimes belief becomes a barrier, I think. And that can be really difficult because someone will cling so much to, I have to believe in an afterlife or a heaven because that's that's what I should believe in, that they can't admit that they're really scared because none of us know. 
For my dad, it's definitely become a more pertinent question the older he's got, because as he's occasionally said, he'll know soon enough whether or not there is an afterlife. Although it's it's strange, you know, to me to think of that, because if there is an afterlife, I hope it isn't the dad that dies that goes into the afterlife. I hope it can go back a little bit to the, to the dad who didn't have dementia. But I mean, I'm not sure like it makes sense to me that someone in an advanced stage of dementia is going to carry on into the afterlife. That's not the afterlife I want to I want to go into. And it's interesting when you mention Buddhism as well. One of those blogs has a story from the Zen Buddhist tradition. What is asked is how can I have a happy and prosperous future? And the answer is father dies, son dies, grandson dies, which sounds bad. But when you think about it, that's the nicest order for people to die in. And, you know, that was interesting to me as well, because, yeah, like my father will die before me. I'm pretty sure it's, it's not 100% certain. Who knows? I might get hit by a bus as I walk out of your counselling room. But if that doesn't happen, my father will die first. But then I'm not going to have children. So I've already messed up Zen Buddhist tradition there. But I actually think I'm going to be happier not to have had children. So I guess I've already problematized the truth behind that. But it's definitely a thing whereby all my life I've been working that my dad was going to die before his time or before my time, like before I'd had enough time with him because he was 58 when I was born. So he's always been an old man. But actually now that he's lived as long as lots of other people's parents that I've known longer than many people's parents, I know many people who were bereaved very early in their life and I'm 38 and my dad's still alive. But now I'd like him to be dead, practically, not in like, I love him, but I don't love what he's going through. And I know that he would like to not be alive. So there's all of those things to deal with around all of this. But I did think that that was a really interesting curveball way of thinking about all of this. That's why the Zen Buddhist always spoke to me so much. Because if it is grandfather dies, father dies, son dies, then we've probably had the chance for all of the different moments that we need with that person. I do love that story and I love it from the first time I've heard it. If we can embrace the fact that we will all die, we can live our lives to the full. But there's something within our society now that almost wants us all to pretend we're immortal. I'm thinking about that idea, your father was 58 when you were born. And so I suppose you've had knowledge that many people will spend many hours in therapy with me from the moment of your birth. Like, hey, people die. and That's sad and scary. But it's just a fact. It's, it's the ultimate fact of life, far more than sex, which doesn't actually have to happen. Death will happen for each and every one of us. And what we do before that moment really can be impacted by how willing we are to accept that we're not immortal. I mean, and that seems to be a big part of what you're talking about in those pieces is acceptance rather than railing against it. It's an interesting thing. You know, everybody quotes rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. But actually, I often think I want to not rage against the dying of the light. I want to, to go with it comfortably and happily and, in, and, and accept that eventually death will happen. And I don't want to get angry about that. I want to enjoy now, but also potentially enjoy death. I mean, who knows what that process will be for me? Like my dad is not enjoying going down that path, although now he can't quite do that anymore. But in certain kinds of ways, he was frustrated with the way his death was coming. You know, he didn't want to lose his senses. He didn't want to lose his thoughts. But if he could have gone comfortably and found some kind of acceptance with that, then maybe that would have been 
a kind of nicer time for him. Like part of his problem with dementia has been that he knows he is no longer what he was. And once he accepts or forgets, whichever one comes first, that he can't ever go back, then I think he'll be able to at least be happier in the final moments of his life. But yeah, acceptance seems to be your main message. Acceptance in a sense, but also what does acceptance mean? So like in Death and Second Chances, if we don't run from the idea that death is inevitable from all of us, what things would we say? What opportunities would we take? What conversations would we have that we otherwise might avoid? And I think that's really important. So sometimes we think of acceptance as meaning passivity, active acceptance. Okay, this is going to happen. Does that mean I have to work on myself because I haven't got forever. Does that mean I have to go and have that conversation with my parents? Or does that mean I have to cut my parents out of my life because I I only have a limited time here and they're making me unhappy? Quite often we do think, I know this is a cliche, this is a rehearsal and the real thing's coming. But no, this is it. This is a real thing. There is no second curtain call where we can get it right. And that's not frightening. That's actually quite wonderful because that means embrace what we have. It's a very liberating situation to be in when you sort of go, I haven't got forever. So yeah, now I can do all of the things that maybe I've I've been thinking about or I can face the difficult things that I've been too scared to, to look at as well. I mean, certainly it's not necessarily easy to do the things you want and be the things you want and live the life that you want. If you could write your own reviews All this would be mentioned just gliding down the avenue Someone take us back to heaven Now every time I see it I hear the pavements sing If you could change the conversation You beautiful thing When we think about death in that story of like the Zen Buddhist story, that's a story about timeliness, about deaths happening at the right time. I've always expected my dad's death to not be timely. And now it probably is much more timely than than I ever expected, like in my life. My contemporaries' grandparents will mostly have passed away by now. They'll have experienced their first close person dying. I mean, like my grandparents either died before I was around or I didn't care for them, particularly my grandmother, who was racist and, and all sorts of problematic stuff. So most people I know have experienced grief and death and all of those things earlier. It's weird, like my dad's dying at a much more reasonable time for most people's parents to die in my life. It's, it is more timely, but weirdly, because I've been always expecting it earlier, it's completely not timely for me now. It's very confusing. That does sound confusing. <laughs> and I think there's something there. We were talking earlier about Kubler-Ross and part of my problems with the model is it's a one size fits all and grief is different. Losing someone in their 20s feels different to losing someone in their 90s. Losing someone through suicide feels different to losing someone through, say, an illness where you had time to not have some of those regrets. One of the reasons I think I've been doing so much work on this is I lost a sibling when I was three, and I don't even remember the loss. 
but I know the untimeliness of the grief because she she was only nine months old when she died. Something about that stayed with me so that when I first started reading about grief and doing training, even on my original like counselling course, something in me said, no, that it's just not that simple. Different people experience this differently and different deaths impact in different ways. You've already alluded to the fact that in some ways our society treats death in quite a taboo way. There's movements to push back against that taboo. You know, now there's kind of death cafes and death doulas and all sorts of brilliant things that I've come across when researching the show. And you work with death and, and grief often in, in the counselling room. How do you approach that? And, and is part of that a kind of battle with this taboo that we've made? It definitely can be a battle. I mean, the first thing I do is check where someone is. Because if, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, my family think I need counselling. My mother died six months ago and I'm still crying. I'd probably go, I think you're just sad your mother died. Normalising grief is part of fighting the taboo. It's okay to be sad if someone we love isn't there anymore. If after the initial consultation, it was interfering for their life in such a way that they couldn't start living again themselves, then there's probably work we can do. But the, the first thing I'd say to anyone listening to this, it's okay to be sad that you've lost someone. Don't think you need therapy just because you are. Usually what I create is a space for all those messy emotions to come out because of not just taboos, but a whole host of shoulds. So you shouldn't be angry with the person who's gone. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you've heard that one. Be pissed off. There's a small child inside of every child who loses their parents who's really pissed off that their parents have abandoned them. That child needs to rage. In that poem, it, his rage is so obvious. He's angry at his father for dying. He wants him to rage against the dying of the light right. so that he stays to look after him. Saying to someone, it's okay to feel however you feel. And sometimes the work is, well, I don't really feel that much. That's okay, were you close? No. Why do you think you should be feeling that? Oh, well, everyone said I'd be really... It's like, you weren't very close and they weren't in your life very much and you saw them once a year at Christmas. I see my postman probably that often. I'd be sad if he died. I wouldn't be grieving. Blood doesn't carry emotions. And that feels almost taboo to say, but just because your blood and someone else's blood are flowing, that doesn't mean you're going to feel what people say you should feel. When I work with abuse victims, that gets incredibly complicated because they can feel everything from relief through to extreme amounts of anger that they've been denied the chance of confronting their abuser. And so then the grief is really like, this is the space where you can do what you need to do, shut the door and then go back out into the world. But even if you've had a wonderful relationship with your parents, that means you need a little bit of that. When it's not parents, there can still be this messiness. A mother who loses her son to suicide, she might be fucking furious. But she can't, outside the therapy room, show that to anyone. Because you're meant to be feeling all of these emotions neatly and one after the other and then reaching acceptance. But what you need to be able to do is get to a place where life's living again. Warden talks about the four tasks of grief and there's the tier model, which again is like a four stage. And they both end with readjusting to the world without the person in it, which I love so much more than acceptance. Because readjustment suggests... It's like when you readjust your clothes because they're not comfortable. It's like, this isn't quite working and I need to pull this up and pull this down. And they might need readjusting again. 
in a couple of hours. But you're doing that so that the world can carry on. Right. And I guess that's very similar in some ways to what people can do and what I've certainly this has been my experience of like readjusting yourself as you move past or through or deal with the fact that you have had certain experiences that you can't take back you've had them and it's readjusting to what you're like now after that experience and you know you can readjust your gender I feel like I've been readjusting my gender for the past 10 years and I'm basically starting to feel comfortable in my gender though the irony is the more comfortable I feel in my gender the less comfortable the world is about my gender but I think that's also a very common thing you can see that not just about gender like when someone develops confidence and then everyone's like I don't want you to be confident at me like it's a nice theory when we were telling you that you needed to get confidence but now you're actually articulating yourself and I think you just hit on a really really useful way of looking at this around gender those heteronormative models of coming out which is like you know you're seven years old you wake up and you're like oh I'm gay and that's it and rainbows and kittens and all that crap. Most queer people know that actually it's not like that. And your process of becoming yourself is perpetual. You don't come out once, you come out daily to the world, but also to yourself. You start off maybe thinking I'm different, then you get a name for the difference. And then that moves on. There's this book coming out in April, Non-Binary Identities. And I wrote a chapter in that about, first I thought I was a lesbian, then I thought I was bi, then I thought I was straight. Then I thought I was cis. Then I thought I was queer. Then I thought I was non-binary. Each one of those is as real as the other. Maybe if we thought about grief more like that, that in this moment, this is what I feel. But in two years' time, I might feel something very different. Both are as real as each other. Both are as valid and both might take a bit of work we might help people a bit more with their grief. And it's also like the version of us in relation to the person as well. One thing I have kind of discovered through doing this project, but also in relationship to the work I've done around masculinity is, you know, in my show about masculinity, Mm. my dad features quite rarely. And when he does, he's a very positive symbol of masculinity, all of which is true. But there are also, you know, more complex elements of my dad's masculinity. He was born in the 20s. I mean, it would be unfair to really expect him to completely live outside of his kind of cultural moment and the masculinities that were available to him during the war. His literary idols are people like D.H. Lawrence or Norman Mailer or like Ernest Hemingway, people who very much tick boxes of toxic masculinity or might even be the kind of people we would be putting in the same boxes as the people who are quite rightly being brought to task in the Me Too movement. Like a lot of these literary characters we like to think of as kind of rugged individualists were were terrible people. And the reason that they were often terrible was because they were trying to be a certain kind of person, namely a man. The light, it moves so fast. It made our words go numb. It took our favourite memories All the friends we'd forgotten I never saw you grieving All those tears we cried It was just deception Such a beautiful surprise And every time Every time. 
And I guess gender gets into everything. And one of your specialities is gender. How does that tie up with how people deal with grief? But also, what are your thoughts around gender and suicide as well? Because that's something that I'm going to be talking about on the shows. Like suicide will come up from time to time in different kinds of ways. But it's something that feels like is often pulled around in the space of gender. Like more men die of suicide, but there are more suicide attempts from women. Some people like to say, like, we're not talking enough about men and other people are not talking about women and non-binary people are ignored as, as per usual. To start on the topic of suicide, I'm really annoyed with how people are politicising really serious issues for the hill they want to die on. We have a genuinely serious problem in this country with male mental health because of gender norms, because men are told that there's something unmasculine about expressing their feelings. Even when it comes to grieving, I think the funerals I've been to where men are still holding the grief in that is not universal at all. And other cultures have much healthier ways where men are allowed to feel grief and other stronger emotions. But in the UK, in this moment, in 2020, we have a real problem because men have been socialised from birth that they shouldn't show their emotions. It's so damaging and it's so toxic and it impacts on every gender. But around the suicide thing, other stuff we know about suicide, such as its access to means and ability to use the means that leads to completion of suicide. And the taboo means almost we don't talk about that. So vets are really high in the statistics for suicide. It's not because being a vet is an awful job. It's because they have the means to access incredibly dangerous drugs and they know how to use them. Until we can talk honestly about why some people complete, why some people don't, I'm not sure we can put the interventions in we need to stop them. That's what I mean by the politicisation. Because I've heard the debates, you've got traditional women's groups on this side saying, no, 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 you more women attempt. And then some men's groups on this side, yeah, more men complete. And it's like, can you both just stop it? <laughs> because what matters here is that someone is in such pain that they want to cease to be. And until we can design interventions that reach out to them in that moment, they're going to carry on being in that pain. And the social conditions as well as the internal conditions are what makes people feel that pain as well. I guess that's why, not to excuse it, but it's one of the reasons why people politicise the grief. The conditions that make people want to cease to be are political. But sometimes when you're looking at the political things that are affecting one group, it makes you kind of not see some of the ones that are affecting the others. Exactly that. I mean, the political conditions in this country at the moment are shit and they're impacting so many people's mental health. But everyone seems to be getting into smaller and smaller silos of the little bit that they want to fight for, rather than saying perhaps capitalist patriarchy damages vulnerable people and is killing them. And if we want to stop that, we have to come out of our little silos and maybe join together. If that makes me sound slightly old-fashioned, good, because some old-fashioned ideas were right. <laughs> Right. No, I agree with that. And when we're talking about the way that this country treats gender, the way that gender is taught to us all from birth. And also the, one of the things we've also been talking about is how people have social scripts around grief, not just that they feel they have to follow those scripts, they also feel they have to enforce those scripts on everybody else around them. The other kind of part of that probably is whiteness, right? Whiteness and grief is a, a thing that affects us in that whiteness, a little bit like masculinity. I mean, they're very joined together. It's actually harder to separate patriarchy 
patriarchy and white supremacy and all of the other systems of oppression than people sometimes think. You know, they're very wrapped together and who knows chicken, egg, what came first, but they all operate together, you know, capitalism as well, to teach us how to be, and particularly in the UK. Do you think that whiteness gets in the way of, like, is part of our taboo with death? I very much think so. And because, you know, I have to tread carefully here because I'm not a person of colour. But you mentioned one of my blogs about difficult conversations and that came from a workshop. And one of the people speaking there, he was of Pakistani heritage and was talking about how because people didn't ask what his family needed, his mother's death was really difficult because they all wanted to be with her at the moment of death. Then they wanted to wash the body themselves, to do all of the care and nurturing that was part of their death rituals. At that time, the NHS denied them that because the NHS had a very white process of grief. We almost seem to disdain any kind of obvious emotional exhibitions. So the proper white way of dealing with death is top of the hierarchy. And that would be calmness and acceptance and stoicism and all those, you know, words that feel very masculine to me. Mm -hmm. And underneath that, people who get hysterical and cry in the streets and, you know, rip their clothes as if that is somehow worse than stoicism. And you've got stuff here around the enlightenment and that split between the emotional and the rational. But it, it feels to me very much that the white way of doing death is promoted in the UK as the right way of doing death. It must be rational and calm at all times. So, you know, in my show about masculinity, I say my whiteness doesn't oppress me. But actually, you know, since then, having talked to, to people of colour who disagree with the statement that whiteness doesn't oppress white people, I have come to the conclusion that whilst, of course, it is not in the same way, whiteness definitely oppresses everybody who is not white more than white people. But there is a split. We are kind of cutting off ourselves in many ways. And I think the history of whiteness is the history of oppression and to oppress people you have to cut off bits of yourself so that you don't feel and actually you know that was a kind of important realization for me I have a culture I have a, a history you know because whiteness is seen as the default you just you know you don't necessarily think about that literally definitely one quarter of my my history my inheritance my my family is colonialist in the worst kinds of ways you know upper class in India during the Raj that kind of thing the trauma for whiteness is is of inheriting the way to be oppressive over a number of generations like you say neither of us are are people of color so it is a difficult conversation to have but i think maybe white people need to have these conversations more and more to the same logic that men need to have conversations about masculinity and i think that's a great comparison patriarchy harms men undoubtedly now the conversation can't be let's fix men first because that would kind of just be replicating patriarchy. But in the same way, white people have to look at what the harms of whiteness are, that they can then step up and say, okay, how do we support with the fixing of this? Because we kind of broke it in the first place. Another thing I think around the harms of the white cultural traditions is we have to remember that we did used to be better at this. You know, if we go back, we had grieving rituals. We had prescribed periods of mourning. People would keep a body in the house. Children would be able to see a dead body, not as a scary thing, but as a, this is a natural part of life. One of the things I love, and I know an awful lot of people hate them, at the seaside in the northeast, we have these benches where you put like 
a picture of the loved one and maybe a bit of verse. And some councils have now had to just stop doing them. There were so many. And I actually once heard someone describe them as un-English because it was a public display of grief for a lost one. I'd never really looked at them that much, to be honest, before then. I thought, after that, I embraced them. It's like, yes, they are in English. Good. <laughs> Let's have more public displays of grief. Let's put a photo of your grandma at Whitley Bay at the spot that she loved, because that is going against so many of these norms of whiteness and of class and of gender and of saying this person mattered, this place mattered, and I want to remember it. When you're saying that to me, that reminds me of have you heard of ghost bikes? Couriers in London, when a courier is killed by cars on the road, they took the bike of the person who died and painted it white and chained it to the railings in the place where they died. Some of them get draped with flowers or whatever. Have you heard of crossbones? Well, it's originally where the sex workers were buried outside the walls of the city of London. And it's become like the outcast's place of mourning. I've been there a few times, most recently to put a wreath for a friend of mine who died. And it's a wonderful place. That ghost thing really made me think of it. We need ways of remembering people. And sometimes we need to create those for ourselves because what exists doesn't allow us to grieve. If we could change the seasons Have two summers and two winters We'd appreciate the difference Always lies between us And every time I see it I feel the pavements sing You could change this conversation You beautiful thing And every time Every time work a lot in terms of dealing with grief and dealing with people's big emotions. How do you look after yourself within all of that? This is going to sound quite strange. Killing zombies. <laughs> I'm quite a big video gamer because I can switch off and enter another world. And I think we've got to do the reflective self-awareness. We've got to do the, you know, what am I feeling? That's all really important. We all need moments where we just switch off, turn the world off and say, right, this is just me. For me, it's Fallout or Skyrim, but for other people, it could be a good book, a long bath. doesn't matter what it is, just the world sometimes has to go away. Do you have any advice for someone who's dealing with loss or grief? I'm a psychotherapist. I don't give advice. Um, <laughs> check in with the people around you. Are they worried? I'm not saying get them to tell you, but if you have a good friend who you can honestly talk to, you say, do you, do you think I'm okay? Because people will notice, are you sleeping? Are you eating? You can be grieving incredibly, but actually be okay. And you can be struggling with grief and not notice it until a friend points out that you've lost half a stone and it doesn't look like you've slept for several weeks. That would be my first piece of advice. My second one would be reach out, talk about it. Ditch the taboo that there are right ways to feel. doesn't have to be to a counsellor. Talk to the people around you. Friends, if you really feel you can't talk to anyone, the Samaritans, but how you are feeling is how you are feeling. There's no right or wrong.
can hear down to a sunless sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at goosefat101. The artwork for this show was designed by my brother, Tony Pickering. For more art by Tony, go to pick-art.co.uk. Thanks so much to Karen Pollock, MBACP, for being such an amazing guest. I'll link to the blog posts mentioned in the episode in the show notes. And you can find Karen's blog and the rest of their work at counsellinginnorthumberland.com and you can follow them on Twitter where they're at Counseling Kaz. The book that Karen has written a chapter in that we mentioned is called Non-Binary Lives, an anthology of intersecting identities and it's edited by Joss Twist, Ben Vincent, Meg John Barker and Kat Gupta. It's on my list of books to get, and I very much suggest you adding it to yours. The poem that me and Karen both refer to in this episode is called Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, and it's by Dylan Thomas. Whilst I've been editing this episode, I've been thinking about that poem a lot, and I've written a kind of response or remix It's called Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Wise people at their end know dark is right. Because their words sometimes forked lightning, they go gentle into that good night. Calm people inside the last wave sometimes give up the fight. And with memories of dancing in a green bay, go gentle into that good night. Wild people who caught and sang the sun in flight and learnt too late they grieved it on its way go gentle into that good night. People near death who see with a clear sight your bright eyes blaze like meteors so be gay and go gentle into that good night. And you, my father, As you go down to a sunless sea, I bless you now with my fierce tears. I remember you and me. I grieve with you the dying of the light and hope you go gentle into that good night.